Welcome to the Switching Gear podcast that tells the story of four apparel brands on their journey to launch rental and resale business models. After the prototyping stage, which we discussed in episode three, the brands entered the next phase of their journey, fine-tuning the business model. The time had come to get to the nitty-gritty and uncover the devil that's in the detail. How will this concept work in reality? For example, what systems, processes, technologies and guidelines need to be put in place before delivering this business model to the market? What activities need to be outsourced and who do you need to partner up with? What will the business case look like now that you know more about the costs, revenues and investments involved? And how can you steer this case towards the best scenario instead of the worst? In this episode, we will hear how the brands mapped out their business model in great detail in order to identify what decisions and steps they still had to make and take to be ready for pilot launch. Be prepared. The famous scout motto that asks its members to imagine every possible eventuality and thoroughly prepare upfront for each. Brands who are getting ready to adventure into this new territory of circular business models would be wise to follow the same advice. There are many new things and unknowns coming your way, and how should you prepare for this? The prototyping exercise gave our brand some idea of what to expect. The next step was to create a comprehensive business model blueprint. The purpose of a blueprint is to visualize the relationships between business model components, people, props and processes, in one clear end-to-end diagram. A blueprint takes the customer journey as a starting point. First, mapping out all the actions the customer takes as they interact with the business model. Then, for every customer action step, you map corresponding front stage actions, backstage actions, and support processes. One key value of blueprinting is that it uncovers the decisions that still need to be made. For example, will we offer a take-back service only online or also in-store? And it triggers team discussions on how to best manage or restructure existing systems and processes. It's a great exercise to do with a full team, as everyone from marketing to IT will have relevant input from their own point of expertise. As Lindex affirms, the blueprint was ideal for them to get the whole team on board and aligned. I would say that this uh, blueprint was a new method and and tool for me personally. And um, the way we use it and and started from the customer journey, that was just perfect uh, for for the total project to, to level up, so to say. And um, we realized that it was very obvious that we haven't made up our mind uh, and it helped us uh, in the product team to have the same view. So we really appreciate this this tool or this method. Uh, it uh, forced us actually to, to choose uh, the right path to go further. It was a good way of onboarding everyone uh, to have the same view of where we were standing right now in the project. As well as making decision points crystal clear, blueprinting also makes outstanding to-dos apparent and it's a great starting point for creating a concrete action plan. We've been mapping customer journeys in our uh, you know, online journey, um, but not in as structured a way Um, and I think especially at the point where we were in the program then uh, it was really great to get into um, more specifics and details how it would work both on on the customer end it it really visualized uh, what they would go through but maybe even more importantly on the 
on the back end side of things. So it's, it allowed us to go into a more concrete um, problem solving mode or, or really going from, from the ideas and loose concepts to how will this work in practice, which I think was really um, for us, I think that was one of the more most fun parts almost. I think it was very helpful in moving forward, mostly with the internal processes to like, what do we need to fix on our end uh, in terms of um, e-commerce partners and uh, for instance, in our case, how to register the take back returns and stuff like that. Um, so I would think that was the key outcomes uh, from, from my point of view. Yeah, I agree. It, it highlighted sort of what do we have already that we can work with uh, and where do we have to figure out new uh, new processes and find new partners. Uh, so it, it highlighted all the steps uh, that were still to do. Um, and it allowed us to, to explore maybe a few different solutions to, to some of the steps uh, as well. Blueprinting puts every detail of your model into sharp focus. And this can sometimes expose gaps in your thinking that need attention. For ETP, blueprinting revealed they needed to be more proactive in communication towards the employees wearing their garments. For example, what we don't do now, but what is very important, is to send a welcome email, a warm welcome email to all the new employees. And uh, it's important to do this on the day that they start their job, because this is a very important communication um, uh, time. This is in the planning and the most important day to already send information about the, the garments, but also about the reuse program and why the, why the collection is sustainable. It can be wise to also invite external stakeholders or partners to join you in the blueprinting process or consult them in tackling some of the problems that you still need to solve. Especially when you're working with a small team like Kuchi, help from outside can be really useful. So I remember that PwC really uh, thought of some things, uh, also cost-wise and these kind of things, that we did not think of. Um, and that it really helped us uh, yeah, think more holistically about uh, the blueprint uh, of our uh, business model, I think. Like warehousing, I did not think myself yet of the warehousing cost. Yeah, I think that's also when we started thinking about more the cleaning process and do people expect like a guarantee kind of uh, thing on, on the garments that they buy from your second-hand line. It was clear from the beginning that in some shape or form, the brands would need to collaborate with partners to deliver their circular business models to the market. The blueprinting revealed just where the gaps in skills, capabilities and capacities were, and it was up to the brands to decide whether they wanted to manage this themselves or to partner up. Interestingly, when it came to managing the pilot, the brands were all quite aligned in their preference to manage it in-house for the most part. For ETP, the main reason for opting for in-house on the short term was to reduce costs. With low quantities, the costs of processing the garments that come back by a partner are relatively high, while these low quantities can actually be easily managed by the team itself. With the added benefit of learning a lot in the process. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that was one of the first things that we found out that we need a reuse partner. So a partner that can help us with sorting, cleaning and repairing the items. And we do that now in a very small scale, but um, in the end, 
in when this takes uh yeah when when we when we will take this further and for more customers in the future then we definitely need a partner that can do this in a bigger way so we thought maybe in the beginning um with our first project we will start the sorting uh, we want to do that ourselves and it will also help us to to learn from this because the longer we do it ourselves and the more items we see we get even a, uh, yeah a clearer view of yeah what items come in when are they good enough for reuse when not linux had very similar considerations when they hit a certain scale they would want to partner but for now they want to learn more themselves as to understand better what they then actually want and need from a partnership. In the long run, maybe we need a partner, but I think that we also realize from the test that um, we get a lot of valuable insights in how this is working when we're in pilot stage. We've had some discussions with partners and I think that they think it's, it's, it's very positive, of course, that we understand the business also so that we can work this together. And of course, they need to have also some scalability prospects uh, to to make it uh, like interesting for them to to engage with us and to make the business case work. However, establishing a circular supply chain at scale is a different story, and our brands recognize that. The most important partnership needs that came back again and again and across all the brands relate to three main areas of the circular supply chain, processing, re-merchandising, and tech. Firstly, there was the processing of incoming garments. Think of sorting collected garments on quality, cleaning them, and making small repairs. For Asket, this was their main need, as their current system and warehouse is not equipped to manage these processes. The main thing uh, I would say is someone to partner up with to take care of more the operational side when it when people have sent back their their things to grade them and uh, um, decide what will happen in the next stage. So if we go to recycling or upcycling and and that kind of things. There's a lot of uh, new workflows uh, and some developments uh, and with our warehouses that we already have, but we still need to set up a new process for how do they differentiate these garments from regular returns and things like that. But it's really, as for totally new skills, it's definitely in the the processing area, a a re-commerce partner uh, that can handle uh, the garments that come in because we don't have that uh, capability and also going forward, not the capacity to do that in-house. And then you have the re-merchandising of garments for resale. This is mainly a challenge for online resale, where you have to create a new or parallel e-commerce site, and you have to make photographs and descriptions for every individual item that you want to resell. Finally, there is a digitalization challenge that runs across all of this, which is related to the identification, tracking, and data management. For most brands, their inventory systems track garments at style level. While this is okay for normal sale, with resale or rental, it's a great benefit to be able to track at the level of an individual garment. Our brands recognize that they will need to integrate or run parallel systems for their resale, which includes a new way of tagging their garments. From Lindex's perspective, once they have the scale for it, they would ideally have one partner that can manage it all, from processing to the tech and admin, up to the management of online resale. We knew that we could do a test like a small scale pilot ourselves. We, we had the system to set up the test 
but uh, we also realize that it takes a lot of administration handling, uh, especially the take back as we did in the test. Took uh, there is someone handling uh, all the registration, the service. I mean, we had to to refine the garments <laughs> ourselves. We have to have someone doing all that. We have to follow up on all the data for for each style. So there's a lot of administrative uh, things that need to be in place for the pilots. This we can do ourselves, but in the long term, we want this to scale. We want to have both someone handling the data, maybe um, bringing the software, uh, doing all the administration, the washing, cleaning, repair, um, like a full service partner. Finally, once you know what you need in a partner, how do you find them? Both Asket and Kuichi have found partners or potential partners through the Switching Gear Enabling Network, which shows that being connected in an ecosystem of companies that all have a shared mission is very useful. In some cases, you might already have existing partners that you can work with. Perhaps they just need to widen the scope of their services. The selection or alignment with an existing partner is probably more of a practical process that involves an assessment of whether they can deliver on an extra service and what would the cost of that be. This is exactly what ETP did. We already knew two uh, partners that, that do this and then um, yeah, through the whole uh, project we, we came into contact with a renewal uh, workshop. And uh, yeah, what we did, we, we just had a few brainstorms with, with, with all of the parties to, to see how they work, what they can do. Um, and then we already found out that the two partners that we already know, that they are most suitable uh, for this job. Um, and then, of course, we needed to know the costs, like what, yeah, what, how much will they charge for the sorting and the repairing and everything. So what we did, it's a small pilot. We made a box of 30 items, um, totally uh, different items like trousers, jackets, everything was in there. And we made sure the two boxes were the same. So every box had like a trouser that was very, very destroyed and a better one, etc. cetera. Um, and that was like the small pilot that they did to see how long will it take us to sort this? Uh, yeah, how, so in small, how will it look like when we get the bigger volume? And that's how they came up with a price. And then in the end, we found out that they are quite equal. So it doesn't really matter which one we choose. For a new business model to be a success and move from pilot to scale, a strong business case is quite essential. In fact, you will most probably need to have a pretty good case to even secure the resources to launch a pilot. Unfortunately, despite their popularity, there is still a lack of clear evidence in the financial viability of brand-led resale and rental models in the market. How to build a robust case where there are so many new variables to take into account, like the resellable rates, renewal costs, resale value, or in case of the rental, the rental price, churn, and frequency of exchange. Variables for which there is still limited information available, but which have a big impact on the results of your business case. And what would even be the right time to start building your case? For Asket, the answer is as early as possible. Making the model early on allowed them to make decisions on what the scope of their pilot and business model could be at the start. We used the business case a lot to see what is possible and what is not. We could use that to weed out, uh, you know, we, we quite early saw that we couldn't be selling online to begin with. 
given the cost structure of that. And we could see that given shipping costs, uh, we will have to focus on uh, the countries where we have the lowest uh, return shipping uh, and things like that. And we could see also what type of uh, rewards we would be able to offer. Uh, so definitely, I think it's good to, in the beginning, use it um, for that purpose. Then maybe you don't have to go into extreme detail uh, and build like a final case directly, but build a model that allows you to uh, try out the ideas. For Kuyuchi, it was hard to make any sort of case until certain aspects of how they wanted to run their business model were more clear. Yeah, and I, th I think it's uh, because right now when we started uh, Blueprint Printing, I think um, we really had a lot of question marks left. So it was pretty difficult to put that then into numbers. Um, if, if your course is not uh, yeah, really clear yet so i think uh it would be helpful if you're if, if you know where you want to go with your business model and then uh actually make a like a business uh plan and and financial plan for that um that's that makes it easier but also in, in the other way um because you are also think about the financial side things can change in your business model but that can also be if you already set a course and you can adjust that as Kuyuchi mentions at the end, the process of creating a business case and refining your model is a process of back and forth. For Lindex, it's actually exactly like that, a continuous process. They used a business case to simulate the financial viability of certain variations in their model and adjust the case as they learn more about what the real costs and benefits of the model are in reality. And the key is, of course, to continue doing the business uh, case and working with it so it's it's about it's about continued development and and to uh, for now uh, we have the model and we have simulate different alternatives so it's now updated with the latest version um, so we can it's very useful to have it and to keep on working with it Another very important aspect of building a business case is to define what success looks like to you. When you have defined this, you can measure the result against this target and see if you're keeping on course. You may have already defined this on a high level in your company goals when you started the project, but now it's time to make your financial goals more concrete. Both Kuichi and Asket have set the goal of the model being cost-neutral or self-sufficient. Well, if I talk for Peter, then it is like, okay, if it breaks even, then uh, we're okay. Um, because I think it's also really part, really an intrinsic part of the Gucci um, identity that we do these kind of projects and that, that we actually uh, try to pioneer in these kind of things. Um, so if, if, if we break even, then... Um, it is really good for our brand image and for the way people see Koichi and uh, these kind of things. For the continuity of the project, it would be better if we make profit from it. Uh, but uh, if we break even, then it will, yeah, we will be perfectly happy. Financial-wise, our main goal is to make it a, a self-sufficient uh, concept so that... Uh, we can basically finance running it by the sales we get from uh, whatever garments we can salvage and, and sell secondhand. Uh, 
So it's it's not something that we're aiming for making any enormous profits. Obviously, in you know there is a a the best case scenario we would have a profitable business out of this, but I think the the general goal is just to make sure that it's uh, self-sustainable so we can keep it going as we scale um, without sort of depleting uh, funds. It's not that they don't aim to make a profit, but they see resale as an extension of their current model and believe that they will gain other non-financial value from it. So the model in itself does not need to drive revenue growth. It just needs to sustain itself. For Lindex, the ambition is profitability, for the long term at least. For them, this is the requirement for scaling. We could say that in the short term, it's okay with some startup costs. and um, But in the long time and long run, we need to find a business model that is both scalable and profitable to make this as a normal uh, business model and uh, integrate it with the, ordin- the ordinary one. So what are some of the most important levers that affect your business case? Which variables should you be focused on as they make the biggest impact? You can explore this by doing a sensitivity analysis, which is what some of our brands also did. A next step would be to then model a base case, best case, and worst case based on the low and high ranges of these variables. In this way, you can see what happens when you do better or worse than expected on these metrics, and you can define within which ranges your business case will remain healthy. Which variables will be your biggest levers will depend to a large extent on the design of your model. For Kuyuchi, it was clear that the take-back reward was a key lever. In the end, they chose a lower reward to increase financial viability. In the beginning, we said, oh yeah, then, then we give the customer 10 euros uh, for, uh, for a denim that they bring back. But then in our business model, we really saw that 10 euro was really a too big uh, a pressure on the financial viability of the project. So we decided to go for 5 euros. And I think that was really an important a decision for the viability of the of the project. Asket identified several revenue and cost drivers and had a clear definition of the healthy ranges they wanted to operate in. So the, the most obvious in general, I guess, is the what we call collection rate. So how how much of the garments we've sold do we expect to, to get back? That will determine the size of, of the business case. Uh, but it doesn't determine so much uh, the success or profitability, uh, but it's an important metric in, in the success of the, or acceptance of the program. Uh, but more to make it work financially, we found uh, the resellable rate of what we get in is, is super important. So how what percentage of garments we get back can we actually expect uh, to sell uh, a second time? Because that rate is, you know, as I said in the beginning, uh, we need to finance the program by the resellable garments. Uh, so that one has a big impact. Um, then, uh, and, and tied to that, you know, how much of it do we expect we need to repair and, think, you know, make fixes to, because that impacts, of course, the handling cost as well. Uh, then the, uh, the resale value, obviously, is super important. Uh, tied to the quality of the garments we get in, but also the, the willingness of our customers uh, to, to buy secondhand. Uh, so um, that one is, is definitely a driver. Uh, and then, as I previously mentioned, then the, the return costs um, is perhaps one of the bigger uh, 
cost pieces, especially for us as we're an online brand with it's going to be primarily uh, shipping shipped back to us. Uh, we can't we don't have a big store network to utilize, which I guess is the normal uh, case when you do take back. Um, and, and for that, a very important metric will be the average items per returns. So it's if if people are sending a lot of items back, the shipping cost won't be a problem at all. But if people are su- sending back just one T-shirt, it's it's going to be uh, very hard to get economics out of that. Finally, it's important to also consider the investments that you need to make to set up your model. All our brands indicated that in the early stages, the most important investment is the time and human resources needed to start things. Asket reflects on this and also the return on investment that they need to consider for this. For them, it's really a long-term commitment and having a return of investment of seven or eight years is okay. Of course, the return on investment will also depend on the scale and profitability ambition that you have for your model. Again, this will differ brand to brand. Yeah, biggest investments uh, would be uh, I, time, to be honest, is, is the biggest. The time spent on developing the concept and, uh, and, and getting everything in place. Uh, then, of course, there are some technical setup, uh, so building the web page, um, building the, the return widget, um, so some tech setup, and then, of course, marketing cost and in, in getting the awareness out there and beginning building a campaign, um, creating content for the site, uh, those sort of things for sure. Um, so that's fairly big investment if you, you add it all up. But it's um, if we look at our base case, uh, we expect to break or, or turn turn the business or the concept profitable only after maybe four or five years. Uh, and recouping the investments, the initial investments, so final break-even, more likely, you know, seven, eight years. While the point of a new resale or rental model is to grow revenue, the idea is at the same time, these models will help us to curb production of new garments. This would be because people will buy secondhand instead of new, which is called displacement, and increasing the utilization of each individual garment. When designed and executed with this intention, these models should allow us to do more with less. But how to make sure that they actually have a positive impact on people and planet? All the brands started this journey aligned with this intention, and we asked them to reflect on that as they near the launch of their pilots. What are their goals with regards to making a positive impact? For Lindex, the aim is to decouple growth from the use of resources and the associated impact of production. The, the impact of, of garments is happening in production and, and the volume of production is, of course, something that we need to, to address. So I think one way of, of safeguarding the impact is really to see um, these new circular business models as part of a growth strategy and in a way to, to decouple growth from volume. And I think that there is a lot of insights and learnings coming from this project that we are taking back to our core business and um, using to align our core business to this new future. And we are working uh, in the design phase already with um, that we want all our products to be designed for longevity and circularity. and. Um, 
we can see just from this case with with um, kids outdoor that uh, there is a lot of insights that we are bringing back to to the design of our kids outdoor in our first business that we can use and it's not only about the quality and the design it's also about the whole assortment strategy markdown strategy um price strategy so it's it's all of these things that need to be considered and looped back their ambition is to go beyond resale as an add-on business model and to really integrate it into their core model and be willing to invite cannibalization of their primary sales this commitment is also represented in the way that they intend to organize their resale side by side with their sale of new items from an environmental perspective cannibalization is is the whole idea right <laughs> so yeah so and we're not really afraid of that because uh, we think that um, we think that these two businesses can really support each other for etp the resale is part of a program that also looks at sustainable design and materials and recycling at end of life because they're working b2b they have an advantage to make their products go full circle and that is interesting with our uh, with this business model within our business and uh, within the business to business markets is that we uh, we know uh, we know the, the people who wear the clothing and we uh, so it's a controlled how do you say that it's a controlled um, process because you know where the you know where the garments are and you know when to take them back Yes, as, uh, the reuse is just one part. The other part is also that, that we are using um, more sustainable materials, fabrics, and even as, uh, circular fabrics. So we already have a couple of items that we can uh, at take back. We can um, recycle them back into a new T-shirt, for example. So that is another part. Koyuchi also really sees an opportunity to create awareness with consumers and change their behavior to focus on the value and care for clothing, as they see it can last multiple lifetimes. I think the business model is also a way to push uh, consumer behavior in, in a way, um, to change, um, change a mindset around discarded clothing. Uh, discarded clothing really has like this feeling of um, low value or no value at all. And I think it's uh, important that people start thinking about discarded clothing as something that has a value and that actually can re have a second life and uh, can be remade or reworn uh, by somebody else. And um, yeah, so I think that the business model is also a way to actually change that consumer behavior and in that way already make an impact. But for Kuyuchi, there's also another potential impact to consider, the supply chain. If their suppliers are enabling the resale model by making products that can truly last over multiple users, shouldn't they then also get a piece of the action? Yeah, I think what was really interesting that Laurent, our production guy, he mentioned that if uh, like circular models will be the future, the whole future, then our current supply chains will be left behind. Um, and I think, yeah, we should in a way... Uh, over time, if this really is a success, we should actually also um, appreciate craftsmanships that goes in the first-hand kind of items because if they're made well and 
they're made to last, then actually they can have a second life and a third life or maybe more. And uh, that is something that's uh, Laurent brought up. And I think uh, over time, if the business model is a success and we can actually extract data about how many lives a, a certain kind of denim will get, we can definitely think about like, um, like maybe a financial uh, kind of thing that we can do back to our suppliers that make actually the best jeans. Um, so this kind of data can be really interesting uh, for the future. At Esquet, resale is a natural extension to their existing model, which is already putting product quality and longevity first. Resale is a way to make that happen for all those that for whatever reason don't wear their Esquet garment till wear and tear. Yeah, I would say like the model in general, like the main goal is to maximize the usage of each garment. So that is part of the uh, product longevity. Um, and cir circularity is in line with what we what we aim for in our vision uh, as uh, as a company and uh, with the pursuit of less uh, as our mission. Uh, but also, I think this will help us to see how we can get use of, um, for instance, textile waste. Uh, also, how to uh, get better use of defects when in in those cases when it happens if we can. Uh, also put them into this loop um, and then I would say like what we're still investigating and looking into is how to best prioritize in order to make the most out of each garment like do we want to of course resell is maybe priority one and then uh, if it's upcycle donate and and then recycle so I think here we haven't really decided the priority yet, but I think that is also a way to see how we can uh, really uh, do the best here and uh, yeah, to maximize uh, the usage. It's all well and good to have ambitions, but what about concrete targets in this area? This is still quite tricky because setting targets means you also need a metric. And just as with the business case, impact is not easy to measure or to estimate. Most of our brands, Asket included, have organized their model in such a way to already limit the environmental impact. They are careful not to stimulate more consumption with the customer and want to minimize operational impacts as much as they can. But they will have to wait and see what happens and set more clear targets along the way. So in the beginning, it will be a lot of, you know, we need to get it going and see what we get in and see what we can do with what we get in to to actually know, you know, how much are we salvaging here? What is the the savings that we, we make through this um, that we can then compare to, you know, what is the added impact of what we're doing in terms of shipping garments back to us and, and sh shipping them to a partner and the processing at the partner with washing or cleaning. Uh, so we will have to balance that. Um, and then uh, in the end also, of course, we need to, uh, look at what do the customers that buy the garments actually do with them. So measuring that in, in some some way, uh, that's perhaps the trickiest part, but seeing that they're actually, uh, we're, you know, coming to use after. So we're how we're trying to safeguard some of it already and how we set it up is, of course, you know, we, we're building a model that doesn't uh, or shouldn't stimulate sending stuff back early. Uh, so it's not a heavily incentivized program. Um, 
you're doing this mostly because it's um, it's the right thing to do. Um, and then we're uh, limiting it initially to markets where we have local warehouses to um, to also uh, minimize uh, shipping um, uh, and you know simple things like you know we're we're trying to do it with uh, QR codes instead of printing labels for the return. It's uh, we're and in that sense also we we're not doing the model where we're we are sending a bag to the customer with a a pre-printed return label in it because then it's shipping two ways. So it's uh, trying to be smart in minimizing the the operational impacts. Working B2B, it will be much easier for ETP to measure their impact. They have set a preliminary target to curb production by 20 to 30% over four years through the introduction of this resale model. We know, for example, for our customer AB and MRO, we know what we normally do in a four-year contract. How many pieces do we make approximately? Um, and so for this new collection, we can measure how many less uh, items we, have, we had to make and then we can also measure um, what we will, what, what we saved in energy and CO two. So there are quite a lot of people that uh, that wear the, the garments only like three months or maybe four months, and all of these items we can use again. So if it will be successful, and of course this is all, it all depends on the communication and all these kind of things. But then we can definitely use a lot of garments for, for the second time or maybe the third time, and then in the end. I think 20 or 30% would be possible. Creating KPIs and setting targets on sustainability metrics is just as important as setting financial targets. Because unless these models are designed with impact in mind and their sustainability performance is measured and optimized, these models might not live up to their circular potential. For more in-depth information on sustainability metrics for rental and resale models and how to manage them, check out the resource section in the circulartoolbox.com. Finally, a model can only be successful when it appeals to your customers. Reselling, giving back used garments to the brand, buying secondhand or renting garments is for many customers an entirely new behavior. So how can you get your customers to participate in this new way of consuming and make this experience as positive as possible? On the one hand, it's good to look at how you can remove friction barriers or hassle factor along the customer journey. For many of our brands, this was especially important when it came to garment take-back. Koyuchi aims to make the give-back process part of the regular shopping experience as much as possible. Whether this is through e-commerce or in-store, for which they will collaborate with retailers. Yeah, of course, uh, these models should be customer-driven because they don't, customers don't like hassle and you have to limit that. Um, yeah, for instance, for us, the hassle for the return, the gift back customer is really uh, about how are you going to return it? Um, and that actually has a direct link to how we're now facing our, uh, looking at our own returns uh, of normal orders. So what would be ideal is that people who order a new Koichi jeans, they can send back... Uh, their return if it did not fit or if they keep it and use the same package to actually return uh, their old Koichi jeans because maybe it's already a long time Koichi fan who has one or maybe multiple jeans 
uh, they do not use anymore. Um, so we're thinking about how can we integrate the return process in our current return process, uh, but also how can we uh, make it easy for people uh, who are not currently doing an order. So we have some uh, retailers that really want uh, to collaborate in these kind of projects. So um, yeah, for that, it, it's also really easy if you uh, say, okay, at these retailers, you can actually bring your jeans and you can uh, yeah, check out a, a new pair of jeans if you want um, with your discount. So in that way, it's, it's like part of your normal shopping behavior, maybe. Um, so yeah, really find, find those touch points that you have with your customer and make, make it easy for them to engage in, the, in it. Um, yeah, and I think one of the key things that you have to do is just repeat, repeat, repeat. For Asket, convenience is also key. What sets them apart is that they can offer transparency towards the customer about the impact of their choices, which to them is another way to keep them engaged. Where we stand out is when it comes to the responsibility we have in our DNA or that we, we are, we're working in a very transparent way. And of course, we want to continue to do that with, with the take-back program. So, uh, for instance, showing numbers of garments collected, what happens once we received it. Um, and uh, potentially, it would be nice also to show some uh, CO2 savings and stuff like that. Uh, so, uh, I mean, we want the customers to feel that they are doing the right thing when they return their goods to us. On the resale side, there is an obvious value for money benefit. Customers can buy a secondhand pre-loved or renewed item for a fraction of the original retail price. However, for ETP, this principle does not apply. So they will need to be creative and find another way to nudge the end users to choose secondhand over new. No, so I, I think this is the, the biggest struggle and uh, we were thinking about the loyalty program um, and this is the, the, still this is the main question. Uh, if somebody goes into our web shop and then they can place their order and there is a new item and there is a secondhand item, why will they choose for the secondhand item? We came up with, I think, a very good solution. We thought um, it should be like a very proactive small reward. So not really so, not something with loyalty points that you have to save up for months and months and then you can do something with it. But more if you are in the web shop and then you click on like on this button, like hmm, I'm, I might be interested in a secondhand uh, item that uh, then it should be like really fun. They will get a pop-up with some information like, okay, if you choose this, know that you are saving so much percent of this and that um, so to get them excited right away and then they can maybe choose for a small gift like a free cup of coffee or a pair of socks or and we were also thinking maybe you can click on like donate one euro for every reused item that you are ordering. When it comes to fine-tuning your business model one piece of advice comes to mind. Done is better than perfect, because perfect never gets done. Looking back, all of the brands have echoed this. At this stage of the journey, it's important to dive into details and make sure you prepare yourself well. But you can never know or anticipate everything in advance. Make a first stab at your business case early on and make continuous updates to it as you learn more throughout prototyping and piloting. 
Build a detailed blueprint of your model as a basis for a clear action plan towards pilot launch and scaling. Reach out to experts and potential partners to help you on your way. As long as you keep your remaining questions top of mind, to learn and tackle them as you go, you don't need all the answers before you begin. Because then, you probably never start. This concludes episode 4 of the Switching Gear podcast. We hope that it gave you insights on how you can turn your concept into a solid blueprint, complete with business case and checks and balances to safeguard impact and customer convenience. In our next and final episode, we will talk about the essential run-up to piloting your business model. Now that the business models have been fine-tuned, it's time for our brands to define a clear messaging to the outside world and tackle any loose threads in their pilot planning. So join us next time as our brands near the finish line and get ready to launch their circular business model pilots. The Switching Gear podcast was made possible thanks to the generous support of Loudest Foundation. The podcast is part of the Circular Toolbox for Apparel Brands. If you are interested in developing and launching a resale or rental model of your own, the toolbox will guide you step-by-step through the same innovation process the brands in this podcast have gone through, including all the workshop materials you'll need and a wealth of tips and tricks to support you on your journey. Go to thecirculartoolbox.com to learn more.